Hello, and welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord podcast. I'm Evan Ball. Today on the show, we have Stefan Babcock, guitarist and lead singer of the band Pup. I spoke with Stefan Babcock of Pup back in April, towards the beginning of the COVID lockdown. He was in his hometown of Toronto, and I was in California, but zoom brought us together as it does these days we have an interesting conversation about being a canadian band versus an american band and the challenges of becoming a cross-border band we talk about quitting your job to pursue making music your livelihood and risking total failure and what it takes to make it other topics include lyrical inspiration book recommendations band chemistry and an experiment pup ran what happens when you provide the public with the chords and lyrics to a song they've never heard, and then hundreds of people record their own version of what they think the song could or should sound like? Stay tuned. Okay, the first 55 seconds are a little rough. Then Stefan switches connections and it clears up. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Stefan Babcock. Stefan Babcock, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yes. All right, real quick, can we get the origin of the band name? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Off limits. I'll I'll be honest, like, uh, there is a very uh, concrete explanation for it, but people started arguing about what it it refers to, and some of the arguments are just so funny that I'm just going to let it go. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So I so I must have come across one explanation, but that's not necessarily it. That's just someone some speculation that that caught on. I've heard I've heard three kind of uh, explanations, and one of them is right because I uh, we've said what it means like in in early interviews, but okay, yeah, I've heard I've heard three kind of get thrown around quite a bit. So I just like to let the let the snowball effect happen here. All right, I like it. Are you in Toronto right now? I'm in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, all four of us have lived here our whole lives. Okay. And so for our future listeners, it's, it's April 21st, 2020 for some context. So what's the state of Toronto right now and how are you passing your time? Uh, I mean, I think all things considered Toronto's doing all right. I feel like I have no, I have no, um, evidence for this, but it feels like just by what I've been seeing on the internet that uh, a lot of Canadians are taking this a little more seriously. So yeah, the social is- isolation here is in full force, and um, yeah, I've been having a, I've been I've been having an okay time actually. I'm normally a, a little bit of a hermit either way, so it hasn't bummed me out too too much. Okay, are you staying active musically or uh, Netflix? Yeah, yeah, I've uh, I'm. I'm writing a lot or trying, you know, it's, it's, I'm finding it, I'm finding it a lot harder to write. I'm not sure why. I think, I think partially my mind is elsewhere. And and the other thing is just kind of like, there's a, a really bleak part of my brain that just is kind of saying like, what's the point right now? (laughs) Like, we're not going to go on tour for a long time, but I've still been going through the motions. And, uh, actually the other day for the first time in my life, I, I tried to write a song on a synth, which did not go well, but it was something. <laughs> yeah, the, the pandemic and, and the associated shutdowns have been 
devastating for so many industries, but I feel like musicians could be hit uniquely hard because when you hear potential plans to reopen society, concerts are like last in line. It's really hard to know, but yeah, not to be a downer right off the bat, but what's your take on the current state of, of being a professional musician? I am a pessimist in life in general. And, uh, uh, I would, I believe what you're saying. Like, I, I don't think that we're going to be able to go on tour until there's a vaccine, which is, you know, they're saying 12 to 18 months. So, uh, that is, you know, 90% of how my band pup made a living is through, uh, touring. So, uh, I'm sort of grappling with this near reality that operating the way we've operated for the past seven years is not going to work at least for the next year or two, it's not going to work. Something I'm still trying to wrap my head around, but I'm just kind of trying to uh, write more songs. And, I, you know, I, I draw a lot. I, I do comics and stuff. So I'm just trying to find if there's a way to keep this career, keep this dream alive uh, without the live component. And maybe that just means, you know, putting out a ton of music all the time or... Um, or, you know, making, making books or, or whatever, whatever it takes, you know? So you mentioned 90% of revenue comes from touring. Where does a musician get that other 10%? (laughs) Uh, Would it be streaming revenue? Yeah. Yeah. Probably like streaming revenue, royalties, um, songwriting royalties, that kind of thing. But we've had a lot of success uh, by, by my, by my metrics. Uh, We've been quite successful and like, you know, we've, uh, we have a really awesome fan base and we're very lucky to have that like strong live following, but, um, we're not a band that's, you know, on the radio very often. We don't get syncs. We're not TV yeah. shows. So, uh, so it really is about that live stuff and, and the merch sales that come, come with touring. Yeah. So you guys obviously have fans in the U S and Canada, but as far as aspiring bands and their quest for popularity, What's the border like between Canada and the U.S.? Does it does it feel more like two distinct worlds, or is it something more unified, maybe by genre? Yeah, it's definitely two different worlds. Huh. Um, you know, to get to for a Canadian band to go to America legally, you have to have a visa, which is about it. Like it's a I don't know how long it is now, maybe three or four months process to apply for it. And it costs, I can't remember, we, I haven't done it for a while, but I think it costs like around 1500 bucks to get a visa just to play a show in America. Uh, so, you know, at a certain point, that's a negligible cost. But when, you know, when we were starting out and we were kind of trying to tour and get paid 50 bucks a show and whatever, that, that $1,500 hit was seemed insurmountable, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I do think there is, there is a pretty big divide and, and, um, what I've noticed with a lot of our friends in, who are in Canadian bands, like, you know, pup have been really lucky to have kind of, uh, broken out of Canada, but we have a bunch of friends who are in Canadian bands who are, you know, far more successful here than we are, but they haven't been able to break into the U S market at all because of border issues or, just kind of going at it, building their career with a kind of Canada-centric approach, which kind of has hurt a lot of them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know if the internet and streaming would would sort of supersede touring, you know, across borders. But I guess that that 
that touring component is pretty pretty big and or maybe it's it's the focus that your friends bands are have i'm not sure maybe i mean i think a lot of like a lot of success in the music industry is like chicken and the egg right so it's like uh you want to get that big pitchfork or stereo gum article or you know whatever it may be but they don't want to do it unless you've got a show lined up in new york or la or chicago uh, and you can't get a show unless you've already got press or radio and you can't get a manager unless you have an agent, but no agent wants to sign you. If you don't have a manager, it's all like, it's all one, you know, horrible chicken in the egg situation. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think on the, on the face of it, I mean, I'm in the U S you're in Canada. We speak the same language Our accents are basically the same. So it's, it's easy to, to just, think it's it's a minor distinction you know whether pop is a, an american band or canadian band so but but i guess if you're a, an aspiring band i mean there's that it is a, there is a separation that maybe a lot of people don't think about yeah i'm gonna risk sounding like a silly american tourist on this episode i'm kind of interested in this but what about <laughs> what about within canada are there are there separate music scenes with bands that sing in french and bands that sing in english yeah so um it's a it's a thing that most anglophone canadians wouldn't even know about but um quebec which is uh you know the french-speaking province in ontario there's french in every province but yeah quebec's sort of like the the hub of um francophone canadian uh culture uh they have a whole different scene of french-speaking artists who some of them are like in in quebec are superstars that people in Ontario never would have heard of, but in Quebec, you know, they play, you know, 5,000, 8,000 cap theaters and small hockey arenas and stuff like that. And, and you cross the border to Ontario and no one's ever heard of them. When I learned about that whole community, it just blew my mind because it's not something that uh, ever sort of comes across your path. If you're, uh, if you're an Anglophone in Canada. That's, that's really interesting. So even if it's similar genres, maybe like in the punk scene, you're not you're not really uh, commingling. Yeah, I mean, in the punk scene, I guess it's a bit different. Um, mm. There aren't a ton of francophone Canadian bands who sing in French. There are a few, but not a ton. But it's more sort of the 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 divide is more in like uh, the pop world or the um, the sort of folk world. Uh, where there are artists that are just massive in Quebec and, and nowhere else. Gotcha. All right. Let's get some of your backstory. So what came first for you, singing or guitar? Definitely guitar. Okay. <laughs> singing still uh, is a challenge for me. Uh, when we started the band, I was writing, I was writing the songs and the plan between the four of us was always to find a singer. And I was just kind of filling in until we found the person uh, and that person never really materialized. And one day, you know, it was just sort of like, okay, well we got to go record a record. So I guess you're <laughs> the singer now. <laughs> That's funny. That the total parallel in, in my band that I was in growing up, but we all sort of ended up splitting the duties. A couple of us took most of it, but that's how it started. So when did you start guitar? I think I started playing when I was about 14. Okay. Yeah, I got an acoustic guitar first, and then I got an electric guitar. I got a Yamaha Pacifica about two months after I got the acoustic. 
<laughs> the day that I got the electric guitar, I joined a ska band. Okay. You know, we played a, we played a show, like it was like a battle of the bands thing, but you know, there was like, I don't know, 60, 70 people there. And, uh, we played a show like a month after I had joined and I'd only been playing guitar for three months and I was supposed to be the lead guitar player in this band. And it was <laughs> a complete disaster. Wow. Well, that's one way to get started. You just jump into the deep end. <laughs> yeah. Trial by fire. All right. So I heard you guys talk about how when you started out, the music was mellower and you sort of morphed into a punk band. Were you guys all coming from different influences and certain influences ended up winning out? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I should say this first. Right now, pop is very much for the four of us together. Right. I might be the guy that stands in the center of the stage, but that's kind of it. The four of us, it can't exist without the four of us. Uh, but when we started, it was very much um, my band, you know, and I was writing these songs and I had this vision of it kind of being a mellower acoustic sort of, not acoustic, but a little more folk, folk uh, focused. And that was working for a bit. But um, I think especially Zach and Nestor who grew up together and, and learned to play music together. And they're, they were they're you know, they're a lot more uh, into kind of heavy music. They're into, you know, metal and stoner rock and that kind of thing. And it was kind of a gradual thing where the songs would just get played louder and louder every practice. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Zach moved, uh, it was, uh, he moved from playing with brushes to like playing with sticks to like playing with these heavy sticks and just bashing the shit out of the drums. And as soon as everybody kind of started throwing their own unique influences into the, into the, the songs that I was writing, it took on a whole different life and it, it felt way better and way more natural for the four of us to be, to be playing kind of louder, faster stuff. So we just started writing that way and, and it's, uh, I'm I'm very happy that we made that choice. Yeah, it's worked out. Uh, obviously, your sound has resonated with a lot of people in the punk world. Um, but there's there's lots of punk bands that have not broken through. Of course, what do you think separates Pup from other punk bands? Luck. <laughs> uh. I think a lot. I think a lot of it is luck. I think another part of it is, um, and, and this is not to say that other bands don't work as hard or harder, but um, you know we we've always had a pretty strong work ethic. I kind of have this philosophy that, you know, there's two people, two types of people who have success in music. And it's, you're either a, like a, a genius, like a musical savant, whether that's a performing, like, you know, you're amazing at performing or amazing at songwriting or whatever. And there's just people who just grind it out and work really hard and just don't stop. And we are in category B for sure. I'm sure your fans would disagree. Uh, well, I'm sure you have that, but you ha you guys have some sort of like, you know, there's, there's an extra creativity. I think you guys bring to your, to your genre. Well, you know, I, who was it that said like 10,000 hours of practice or whatever will make you perfect. I don't really believe that, but I do believe that, you know, since the day we started this band, we practice like five times a week and we quit our jobs to play in this band before we were called pup. Like before this band was anything, we jumped in with two feet and we're like, we're going to just risk it all be broke right. and just see if we can make this work. And I think like, it's a thing that not a lot of people 
want to do is like risk that huge failure. Yeah. You know, if we had failed at it, we would have all lost our careers, the careers that we had before this band. Um, and we would have been broke and we, it would have set us back in our lives like four or five years, you know? Yeah. So where does that drive come from or what makes you want to do what you do? I think it'd be different for everybody in the band, but for me, it's like, I just, I don't see a life where I don't write songs, whether it's for a living or not. And the four of us all like, you know, we all love playing live. For me, I'd been in a couple bands before this one and I, I just like love writing songs. I love being in a band, but none of those bands, you know, the personal dynamic never really felt right. And I think a lot of my drive came when I met these other guys and, you know, we were on the same page musically and they were as committed to being in a band as I was. And we all kind of had the same expectations and goals and it just felt really right. And my kind of drive came from like, if I can't do it with these guys, I can't do it with anyone. So I got to go for it now. It's now or never, you know? Yeah. That chemistry is so crucial. Yeah. If, if you couldn't play music, what career would you want? Do you ever think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I always thought like maybe uh, being an architect would be cool. Uh, but I don't know anything about that stuff. <laughs> I'd maybe be a farmer or, <laughs> or, uh, I've been, I've been drawing a lot of comics lately. So, uh, who knows, maybe, maybe there's some sort of uh, career in that. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not very talented though, but you know, 10,000 hours or whatever. Well, that's cool. Three other options, three very disparate options. I guess it's hard. It's like to, to think, you know, what, what my plan B would be because I had a job before I had a career, uh, but it wasn't really what I loved doing. And I didn't really have a plan B for what was going to happen if music didn't work out, which maybe is also one of the reasons why it kind of worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hearing from in other interviews you guys have done, it sounds like your first big power play was, was reaching out to Dave Schiffman who would end up producing the band. Yeah. Yeah. Was this just a, a cold call or was there a connection already in place? Yeah, it was more or less a cold call. Um, we had some mutual friends. He he produced an album by a band called uh, Priestess, or um, a Canadian kind of, I guess he called them stoner rock or metal or something in that vein. Uh -huh. And we were big, big fans of that band. Um, and he had produced the record. And we were also kind of vaguely friends with them uh, and had a few connections that way. So uh, we managed to get our kind of demos into his hands and we had zero expectations, but he took a real liking to the demos. And I think he kind of took us on as a pet project because there's no way that we could have afforded him at his full rate or, you know, there's no reason why he would want to work with a band that was at our level. Um, but yeah, I think he just took a risk on us and, and treated it like his pet project and it really worked out. So you know, he also produced our second and third record. And with every record, uh, as you know, we have made a little bit more money with each record. He also makes more money and we're kind of feels like we're a team that's in it together. Did you, did you throw a lot of lines out and he's the one who responded or was he your, your number one target? Yeah, he was the first, the first one we, we made a list. We had a list of about 10 people and he was at the top of it and yeah. it worked out. Yeah. 
So what happened next? He wants to work with you. Is there a, a date set to jump into the studio or do you, you guys meet up first? So he came, if I'm remembering this right, he came to Toronto after we sent him the demos. He lives in LA. So he flew in to kind of hang with us to see if we would all get along and to kind of hang out in the jam space and hear the songs and, and, you know, maybe um, make a few suggestions and stuff like that. Another example of just like, chemistry just being so important and working in our favor like i think we left that pre-production session feeling like this is a perfect fit and uh and we just planned to make the record after that you know i think we made the record we started recording it like four or five months later so so touring so back in the olden days when bands toured do you have a favorite place (laughs) to tour i love going to australia i think australians especially for you know guitar rock is still alive and well in australia way more so than anywhere else the australians who like punk music and guitar rock music are mostly completely unhinged so (laughs) (laughs) the shows are pretty fun um yeah yeah that sounds fantastic what's the best way to pass your time when you're on the road i draw and i read a lot i'm pretty introverted guy so being on tour being around people all the time kind of takes a pretty significant toll on me so i like to kind of like go into my own world every day and whether that's reading or drawing or whatever nestor and zach uh they both have nintendo switches and they they are like deep into zelda like hours every day and steve's a big reader as well so so do you read nonfiction or fiction i'm mostly um i'm mostly a a fiction guy okay any uh any book recommendations you want to throw out yeah. Um, a Prayer for Owen Meany. It's a really great book. Uh, I just finished this book, which is kind of like, I think by the title, it's a little bit embarrassing because it's pop lit. Uh, but uh, it's called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. I think that's the title. Okay. Uh, and that was, that's just a, it was a really fun, kind of dark, but also like quick read. So, um, that's a, that's a great one. If you just want to burn through something in a couple days. Great. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, book recommendations are as welcome as they've ever been right now. So, yeah. Oh, um, one other one, if you want to bite into something a bit bigger, there's a book called house of leaves. Do you know about this book? No, no. I'm a big, uh, I'm a big horror fan or horror novels. Uh-huh. This it's, it's a pretty big book, but it's, it's written in a way that I've never seen anything else written. It's um, without giving anything away. It's about a house that is larger on the inside than on the outside. Huh. And it's a really great creative book. Yeah. All right. Another touring question. What's the ideal set length? 22 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, short, you like yeah. A short set? yeah. I mean, we've uh in the past four or five years we haven't really done much much, many support tours it's mostly been headline tours uh so you know we we like to play for like an hour at a headline show which i guess is still a bit short for a headline set but uh uh, no but nobody wants me yelling in their faces for more than an hour so (laughs) we keep it at an hour but yeah my favorite um my favorite are when uh, when we have that odd, like weird festival set, or um, it used it used to be back in the day, we used to always be like you know first to four band, and given twenty minutes, and you just rip your like six 
fastest, snottiest songs and get off stage and not speak at all. Those were my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Hey, can you explain the free at last challenge you put out to your fans? I think that's, it was brilliant. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, so that we made a music video for a song called free at last. And before the song had come out, we, uh, put the, um, the chords and the lyrics to the song in a zine that we made. And we asked people to sort of like interpret it however they wanted and sort of guess, guess what the song would sound like, or make their own version of a song that used those lyrics and that chord progression. Yeah. And, and, uh, people started sending us in videos of them, like, you know, just making up what, what the song would sound like. And we ended up getting over 250 people sent us videos and, and audio files. There were like opera versions, like done by professional opera singers. There were, there was like trap versions. Um, there were like deathcore versions. There was like folky country versions. There was a, there was a mariachi version, like literally almost every musical genre I could think of. We got somebody who, who sent in, you know, that song. And uh, we decided that we would compile all of that into a 250 song playlist, which runs about, I think it's over 14 hours. And I have listened to every single song on it. And uh, we also made a music video using a lot of the, uh, the videos sent in from people. I would say it's one of my proudest achievements in this band, or, or I should say our, our proudest uh, achievement in this band uh, was making that video. I, I love it. I think it's, uh, if you're going to start, if you never heard Pup and you need to start somewhere, I would say the Free At Last music video is the, is the place to start. Yeah. Did anyone come up with a melody similar to the actual song? No. And you know what, yeah. you know what's interesting is of like the 250 versions, almost none of them sounded like each other at all. It was yeah. really like this cool social experiment. It was like this, like the way that people might interpret art or I'm sure there's like a deeper, there's a better, you know, more, more philosophical way to say this, but um, I, I just found it interesting that like, you know, everyone kind of heard the, that chord progression and those, those lyrics differently. And, and it was really, really interesting. There were some versions that honestly, like were probably better than our song. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. But it speaks to this phenomenon that I think a lot of musicians probably think about it at one time or another. How are, how are there still songs left to be written? There, you know, there's only so many chord progressions that get used, at least in popular music, and they've been used over and over. But somehow there's this endless well of potential songs. Yeah, I think it is tricky because I've had a few songs in the past where I've written and, you know, they, they never came out. But, you know, somebody would point out, oh, this kind of sounds like maybe this other thing. And I'm not sure if I've ever heard those other songs and it, maybe I did and, and it kind of infiltrated my subconscious or maybe it was a kind, kind of complete coincidence. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Either are very possible. Um, but yeah, that's what is one thing that I'm trying to be really aware of in my songwriting. Almost every melody and certainly every chord progression, like you said, has been done. So um, try to get a bit weird with things when you can, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure people are bound to write very similar things sometimes just because people with, with similar taste buds are going to 
be inclined towards certain note selection and and whatnot. So, yeah. But in general, your experiment shows how many possibilities there are. All right, Pup has received lots of nominations and awards. Do you have do you have any favorite accolades or awards? Um, <laughs> that's a that's a funny question. Um, <laughs> you know, I just throw them out there. You know, I don't like music is not a competition. That said, uh, we win a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're more of a, we're more of a, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. We've been nominated for a lot of things, but, uh, we've won very few. Uh, one that I am, I am particularly proud of is, um, there's a prize, a Canadian prize called the Polaris prize. It's sort of like the Mercury prize in the UK. It's, um, it has nothing to do with popularity or, or album sales. It's not like the Grammys. It's just like voted on by music critics. And our last two albums were both shortlisted for it. We, we haven't won. We've never won it. And I don't expect ever to. But uh, being nominated for that, uh, that award, it's, a, it's an award that, you know, I paid attention to a lot um, when I was growing up. So that meant a lot to me. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's got to feel good to be to be recognized. Yeah, I don't put too much. I don't put too much um, stock in it because a lot of that stuff is just such bullshit. Um, but you know, you know, it is it is nice though. It is nice to to be recognized for hard work once in a while. Yeah. All right. So you have your own label, Little Dipper, but you're also on Rise Records. Yeah. How does that work? Uh, it's kind of an interesting partnership. Um, between Little Dipper, uh, Rise, and BMG. Okay. And I would say, uh, you know, we formed the label because for a couple of reasons. One being like, you know, we have very, we very much come from DIY roots, but we're not really a DIY band anymore. Uh, In some capacities we are, uh, like we do our own videos with our friend Jeremy and, you know, you know, whatever. But Uh, we, we make zines and, you know, stuff like that. But the truth is that like, we have a lot of people who work with us now, you know, we have managers and agents and and all that stuff. So forming our own label was like just kind of a way to hold on to a sliver of our, our DIY roots and our DIY, you know, beliefs and stuff like that. Uh Uh, we wanted to make that label so that we could kind of like stay in control of everything we did artistically. Rise came on board as a label who has had a lot of, you know, they've, they've done a great job with their bands and they, they have kind of been the manpower behind our ideas. So it's been a really, it's been a really great partnership. They let us kind of like lead the charge on, on marketing and creative, creative stuff like that. But we don't really have the uh, expertise or resources to make a lot of our dumb ideas come to life. So, um, they're really great at helping us do that. And uh, yeah, we've been really yeah. lucky to work with a bunch of great people who have come on board with this band. Yeah. Sounds like you get the best of both worlds then. Definitely feels like that. Yeah. Couldn't, well, if Rise, is, Rise Records is, is that willing to, to trust you guys and let you do your thing, couldn't you just be on Rise Records without Little Dipper? We could. Um, yeah. But I think, you know what? I think like if... Um, this might sound a bit selfish or something. Um, but I think if you're, if you're willing to be creative and willing to do a lot of hard work, try to reap some of the reward, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think we're just like, we're a band that the four of us are just 
in very general terms, the four of us are probably a lot more um, actively involved in the business side of our careers than most bands at our level. Gotcha. Where do you draw your ideas from or inspiration for your lyrics? For for each of the three records we've written, I think the the lyrics kind of they're all somewhat connected, uh, but I kind of view our albums at least lyrically as kind of, um, you know, six month snapshots of my brain, like where, where we were at, where I was at in the six months that we wrote, we wrote the the album. So, um, I was going through a pretty tough time while we were writing the last one. Um, and so, um, you know, our, our last record morbid stuff, it is pretty, um, the lyrics are more on the, on the dark side, I would say, um, they're, a little bit depressing but we try to deal with that in a kind of humorous way um we're, we're not a very self-serious band so we try to find humor and find some sort of catharsis in, in those kind of lyrics yeah and uh the record before the dream is over you know it the lyrics came about we were on the road touring the first record um 250 days a year for like two or three years in a row the only thing on my brain was touring because that was the only thing that I know. Like, you know, if you're if your job is to be a songwriter, there's only so many songs you can write about songwriting. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my job was to be a, a touring guy for a few years there and do nothing else except for tour. And that was on my brain. And so that second record is a lot about um what it's like uh to be on the road and love your bandmates and hate your bandmates and um, be stoked that you're doing what you want with your life, but also be upset that maybe it's not working out the way that you had always envisioned it. And, you know, so a lot of conflicting sort of ideas there. And you had a pretty serious issue with your vocal cords. Was that right before that album? Yeah, it was right before the dream is over came out. Okay. And that was potentially a brick wall for the band. I would, I would think. Yeah. Is that a risk going forward or do you have to take precautions? I do take precautions, a lot of precautions, actually. Um, maybe I'll just give a bit of the backstory. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I'm not a trained singer. I just kind of have always gone out there and yelled and sang and whatever happened, happened. And uh, I guess, you know, doing 250 shows a year for several years just kind of caught up with me. And I ended up uh, developing a cyst on my vocal cord and um a hemorrhage which means that my vocal cord just started kind of bleeding into itself or filling with blood which those two together could often kind of mean like that's it for you as a singer so yeah that that was uh that was kind of a tough pill to swallow as i said earlier in the podcast you know like i'm a i'm a pretty big pessimist so while i don't think it'll ever be an issue it's always on my mind. Like, is this my last show? Is this the day that I blow them out completely? But no, I do. I do take a lot of precautions. Um, I started training with a vocal coach um, who's really amazing. And he, he was the first person to not try to change how I sounded, just kind of changed my approach to, to, to things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I take, I take really good care of myself on tour. Now I used to, I mean, I still like to party once in a while, but um, it used to be like a lot of drinking, a lot of smoking weed, late nights, eating garbage, all that crap. And, and uh, 
now I'm more like eating salads and drinking tons of water and only uh, only getting drunk once in a while and just, you know, trying to take better care of my body. Yeah, I hear you. Do you have advice for aspiring bands? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, um, well, we were kind of talking about it before. It's like, if you're serious about music and um, you really want this as a career and you are having uh, personal issues with somebody in your band or multiple bandmates, those are not the people that you're going to have success with. So, you know, get out of that situation. Yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, everybody, everybody says, you know, hard work, hard work, hard work. Um, and it's easy to say you're going to work super hard. Uh, but then when it comes down to it, you're not really willing to go the extra mile. It's like, if you want to do this, I think anybody who really wants to do this can do this. You just have to really mentally prepare yourself to like be really poor and, you know, not see your partner or your family or your friends for like months on end and work harder. Like I, I'll probably write music like, when I'm at home, like 10 hours a day, every day. So, uh, you just kind of really have to love doing it and want to do it and be willing to sacrifice a lot. Yeah. All right. Important question. What gauge guitar strings are you using? <laughs> uh, I'm using the, uh, 12 to 56. Oh, okay. Uh, they're not even slinkies. Yeah. We, uh, we play, uh, live, we play a full step down. So we play in D standard. Yeah. And some of our songs are dropped even. Like some of our songs are drop C, uh, which is like, we do not sound like corn, but we have similar tunings. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, use real thick strings because uh, we, yeah, we're just playing really kind of. I also do a lot of like, you know, chordal, power chordy um, kind of stuff. I'm more about like getting some crunch and growl than I am about shredding. Right. All right. Well, Stefan Babcock, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Striking a Chord and Ernie Ball podcast. Since this interview, Pup has released a couple singles and has been active on social media. So go check them out. They're staying busy. If you'd like to contact us, please email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. Hey, real quick, your phone's breaking up a lot. Oh, okay. Do you, um, I can try getting off this headset and see if that does anything. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll check the recordings real quick and see if it's just how I'm hearing it rather than how it's being recorded. Um, okay. Oh, oh how's this? Is it all right? Yeah, yeah there we go.